This is Question of the Week from BU Today. Would codifying Roe v. Wade protect abortion rights? In this episode, BU Today staff writer Amy Laskowski talks to Linda McLean, a BU School of Law professor, about what it would mean to codify Roe v. Wade. McLean also outlines how abortion rights have been eroded in the courts over time and discusses the likelihood of Congress passing legislation like the Women's Health Protection Act. Our question this week is one that has a lot of pro-choice people worried. What would it mean to codify Roe v. Wade, which protects pregnant women's right to an abortion? Linda, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. So to codify Roe versus Wade would mean to pass a law, either a state law or a federal law, that would um, affirm a pregnant person's right to um, access to abortion uh, without uh, undue interference. And that could happen. The most effective way to codify Roe is probably the least likely which would be for Congress to pass a law that would be binding on all the states, because otherwise, although particular states could and already have in some ways codified Roe, many states will not, and you'll have the checkerboard we have right now. Have Democrats proposed codifying Roe versus Wade before, and why weren't they successful? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so one thing that's important to understand is that when people talk about codifying Roe versus Wade, you have to understand that we haven't had Roe versus Wade since 1992, because in 1992, the Supreme Court um, decided Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which said that it was upholding the ultimate holding in Roe, which was up to viability, the pregnant woman has the right to choose without undue governmental interference, but it opened the door to a wide range of regulation of abortion that was not permitted prior to Roe. So in other words, Roe had a trimester approach, which was during the first trimester, basically because pregnancy was was safer than childbirth, um, there was very little room for state regulation other than, of course, uh, ensuring consent. During the second trimester, the state could regulate to protect the woman's health, and then they could prohibit abortion in the third trimester in the interest of protecting fetal life, subject to exceptions for life and health of the pregnant person. So this was a trimester approach. Casey basically threw that out pre-viability and said from the very beginning of pregnancy, the state has a profound interest in protecting potential life, and that opens the door to waiting periods, you know, uh, informed consent, which requires someone to have one consultation and come back, ultrasounds, you know, all sorts of things that previous to Casey, the court had struck down. That's a little bit of a perspective on this whole thing of codifying Roe. We haven't really had Roe in its full form since 1992. Linda, would you mind summarizing Hyde and Casey for those of us who aren't sure what those are? Um, So soon after Roe was enacted, um, many women were obtaining their abortion care through the use of Medicaid, through government government-funded medical care for low-income women. And Henry Hyde uh, was particularly zealous in trying to stop abortion, but he recognized that the most effective way he could do so was limit government's payment for abortion. He couldn't stop every woman from getting an abortion because they hadn't been able to pass the Human Life Amendment. So instead, 
he passed this, he helped pass this Hyde Amendment, which restricted use of, of government funds um, uh, so that you couldn't use um, government funds for abortion. And over the years, it's varied whether you can use them for, for to save the life or health of the pregnant woman or whether you, there's no exceptions or rape or what have you. So the Supreme Court upheld the Hyde Amendment. And that was, those were really the cases that introduced the undue burden test, right? Which is as long as government's not putting an obstacle in the path of a woman's access to abortion, they're not violating her rights. So her poverty's a problem. We didn't do that, that's just her problem. So what Casey does in 1992 is take that undue burden test that came in these public funding cases and make that the new standard. So Casey actually talks about this as an undue burden, and as long as this restriction is not an undue burden, then it's permissible if it furthers women's health or fetal life, and then that opens the door to all sorts of different restrictions, and then the court's got to decide, yeah, that looks like it's undue. No, that's not undue. So that's why we get all these so-called trap laws, right? And we see that sometimes the court is able to say that is undue, like the Hellerstedt case or the June Medical Services case, but in many other instances, you know, ultrasounds, uh, Casey itself involved a waiting period, you know, um, the court's willing to say, no, that's not undue. So one of the other things I'd say about Casey is, Casey gives a much more robust defense of why women need access to abortion. It talks about their autonomy, their dignity, their liberty, because Roe talked about abortion more about the right of the doctor in consultation with the patient to make this medical decision. So the upside of Casey, it has this powerful language about the ability to participate in the life of the nation, which is quoted in the current bill before Congress. But the downside is it has a more restrictive framework that allows lots more latitude for the state to act on behalf of you know, fetal life or to use the language of, of you know, uh, the Human Life Amendment, unborn children. You mentioned the act before Congress right now, the Women's Health Protection Act. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that was introduced in 2019, and um, it's being reintroduced again. And that act basically quotes Casey's language that the, the, the access to abortion has been essential to women's ability to participate in the social and economic life of the nation. It's quotes that three times. So it's kind of using the Casey language to talk about how critical it is for pregnant people to have access to abortion. It talks about the slew of restrictions on abortion access in all these different states, hundreds of laws, trap laws, targeted regulations against abortion providers that try to make it more difficult for doctors and medical providers to provide abortion and women to access it. And it basically attempts to codify Roe by saying pre-viability, an abortion provider has the right to provide access to abortion and women have right to access it. And it specifically names lots of different state regulations and saying they're not permitted, such as making a woman make more than one trip, prescribing unnecessary tests, making the clinics comply with regulations that would not be used for other procedures. And it says, unless you would require this kind of regulation for a comparable medical procedure, you can't require it for an abortion. Because you know, they have rules like you have to have super wide hallways, you have to have admitting privileges, and, and there's been all these, these uh, efforts to kind of restrict the ability of clinics to operate. And basically, to use Justice Sotomayor's idea, 
You can't single out abortion for exceptionally harsh treatment, which is what's basically been happening, right? Like making tele telemedicine much more difficult in the case of abortion than you would for any other procedures and things like this. And, and it really shifts the burden. Instead of this undue burden test that, that Casey talked about, it basically says that all these different types of regulations are simply not permitted. And then if you do put restrictions on women's access, the burden falls uh, on the, the person who's adopting the restriction or the entity to demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that this is necessary. And there's no less restrictive alternative. So that takes us closer to what Roe had, which is kind of a strict scrutiny approach to, to fundamental rights, which Casey basically abandoned. And I would just say that the act also points out that these restrictions tend to fall more harshly on women of color, on rural women, on immigrant women, on poor women. And so these burdens don't fall evenly. So if the Democrats aren't successful, where does that leave abortion access in this country? Right. Well, I think the Democrats will be successful in the House, but this isn't going to get through the Senate unless it can uh, even get to so-called cloture with 60 votes. And I think where it leaves us is state by state, right? Unfortunately, um, you know, it's in the hands of, of the federal courts in some of these red states. Um, the Supreme Court temporarily has, has hindered uh, the challenge to the um, Texas law by letting it go into effect right away and all this damage is being done. But what it means is that blue states are likely to pass more laws codifying Roe or some type of access to abortion rights. I think there's going to be efforts to help people in red states have access to abortion out of state. You know, the very sort of thing that, you know, we're supposed to be protecting against. It leaves uh, people in states uh, that are, you know, ready to pass more of these laws uh, in a bad place. The pro-life people or the anti-choice people have operated on many fronts at once. They still are hoping to pass a human life amendment, but that's very unrealistic with the current Congress. And so they've, they've chipped away for decades at abortion rights by all these restrictions, right? And now this is this Texas law is the most extreme version because you pass a blatantly unconstitutional law and then make private citizens the enforcers so you try to avoid federal court review. And the scary thing is with, you know, now we now have a we now have a, several justices on the court who are critical of Roe, and some people just think that Roe is basically gone. And the question is, well, if, it, if that happens, it returns to the states, and then we're back to the checkerboard. And, you know, whatever state you live in determines your rights unless you have the resources to go to another state. Unless you're wealthy and have the means, like you said, to fly somewhere or get a ride and take time off of work. Linda, thanks so much for speaking with us today about uh, can Roe v. Wade be codified. It's complicated and we appreciate your insight. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to Linda McLean for joining us on this episode of Question of the Week. To learn more about what the Texas abortion law means for the future of Roe v. Wade, check out BU Today's recent interview with Nicole Huberfeld, a BU School of Public Health and School of Law professor. You can find the link to this piece in the show notes. And while you're there, please remember to rate, share, and review us on your podcast app of choice. I'm Dana Ferrante. See you next week.